Hi, welcome to Someone Else's Movie, the podcast where an actor, writer, director, or nebulous industry figure gives a little love to a movie they didn't make. I'm Norm Wilner, senior film writer for Now Magazine, and this is the other thing I do. My guest on this special TIFF bonus episode is Molly McGlynn, a writer and director whose filmography includes the radically different but equally satisfying shorts Given Your History and Three-Way Not Calling, featuring friends of the show Katie Boland and Christian Brune, respectively, and the web series How to Buy a Baby. Her first feature is the funny, moving drama Mary Goes Round, starring Aya Cash and Sarah Wiseglass, and it's making its world premiere this Saturday, September 9th, at 3 p.m. at the TIFF Bell Lightbox. You should go. Molly picked American Beauty, Sam Mendes' 1999 Oscar winner starring Kevin Spacey as a middle-aged man who sends his entire neighborhood spinning into chaos when he abandons his identity as a comfortable suburbanite and starts acting like the younger man he desperately still wishes to be. Eighteen years after its first TIFF screenings, the film, which also stars Annette Bening, Chris Cooper, Wes Bentley, Thora Birch, and Mina Savari, plays very differently now, but at the time of its premiere, it exploded like a cultural landmine, winning the festival's People's Choice Award and setting itself up for Oscar glory. And all because of a goddamn plastic bag. This is someone else's movie. Well, I'm kind of surprised that I picked American Beauty, because I saw like a couple titles on your shelf already that I was like, damn it, Chip, damn it, damn it, damn it. That happens. Like even beginners. I was like, oh. um, but I think this is a very unoriginal reason. Uh, but I think it was the first movie for me in high school was when it came out in 99. Right. So that was, uh, I think it was like a um, theater class where we had one week dedicated to film and... This was in suburban New Jersey, and she wheeled out the thing with the TV and the, and the VHS, and we watched it. And, you know, when I'm looking back, I was probably grade 9, mm. so I, I was 13 at the time. So this was, you know, thematically, that teacher was kind of pushing it she a little bit. a little bit. out of the curve, I would think. Yeah, yeah. totally. Um, but it was the first time I became aware that I was watching... This is going to sound very pretentious, that I was watching a film and not a movie. And it was the first time that... I was no longer just a passive consumer okay. of entertainment, and I became engaged in this kind of uh, intellectual way. And I that probably has so much to do with the point of my time and my, you know, cognitive development where where this was meeting. But yeah. you know, of course, I emotionally connected to a lot of things. Lady and the Tramp could have been an option for us <laughs> to talk about, but but we'd have more to speak about with American Beauty. But. Um, I don't know. Lady in the Tramp has all that stuff about the mistreatment of animals. And yes, like, there's, yes. There's stuff you could, there are roads you could explore. Yeah, I'm not going to fuck with that. <laughs> um, and I think uh, part of me was that kind of angsty teenage girl who's, you know, locked in what she thought was miserable at the time. And looking back was, of course, very, to some degree, privileged, etc. Um and probably the first time I used motif in a sentence was okay. related to some sort of paper essay I wrote on this, you know, you know like motifs of roses and like thinking I was so, <laughs> so intelligent and like ahead of the curve. Um, but, you know, I, like I was reading about it this morning, kind of just seeing what people have written on it since then, because at that time, obviously, access to internet was different and I just liked it because I liked it. But now there's a few... Uh, pieces that were very like American Beauty's the worst film ever, and um, yeah. you know, 
Lester Burnham is, is the worst, and he's basically modern day uh, Humpert Humpert and all this stuff. And he's not not the worst, but I think that, yeah, I, it's a good example of when internet culture demonstrated its ability to be incredibly toxic and incredibly uh, enabling at the same time. Mm-hmm. Maybe enabling is the wrong word. Empowering, but it's it is exactly the sort of movie that you can interpret in any direction. And if totally. you choose to hate it, you can find a lot of stuff in there worth hating. Mm-hmm. And I saw it at TIFF, actually. Uh, it was either the first... No, it must have been the first weekend of TIFF. Uh, on the Friday, I think. Mm-hmm. Screen, there was a press screening of this at 7, and then at 9.30 we all had to run uptown to see uh, Snow Falling on Cedars. Okay, great. The great, forgotten, terrible yeah. uh, Scott Hicks adaptation. That was awful. Yeah. But compared to that, and just on its own, this felt pretty good. This, yeah. This felt like... You know, it's a clear directorial voice. It's a little obnoxious, but I think it's supposed to be. I don't think you're supposed to root for Lester, necessarily. Yeah. And, and Spacey's performance is absolutely, you know, pissy. He's, mm-hmm. he's not, a, he's nobody's hero but his own. Mm-hmm. And watching two things happen, watching half the room just go for it, myself included, because mm-hmm. it's like, oh, where are we going to end up? This could be interesting. And yeah, the the ending is a little bit, I mean, more than a little bit manipulative, and mm-hmm. it all, it's one of those classic third act things where, oh, you know, if people just talk to each other for five seconds, none of this would proceed. Right, exactly. But that's kind of the point of the movie, that mm-hmm. nobody talks to anybody else. So by that point, I was okay with it, mm-hmm. and I wasn't going to completely disconnect from the movie. Right. Whereas other people were just furious over, you know, I get the total betrayal of, of Chris Cooper's character. It's like, well, no, that's mm-hmm. that's a pretty clear portrait of self-loathing. Like, it's all yeah. about everybody hates themselves in this movie. And, and maybe if you if you go in with the idea, oh, well, the suburbs are, are upset, that's a big new revelation. Like, if you're going in with a sarcastic point of view or you're not prepared to explore the idea that, yes, it's a cliche, but this is why it's a cliche. Exactly. Yeah, and... Also, like, stuff I was reading today, the comments on this woman, I think it was from some online decider or something like Mm -hmm. that, but the comments of people were like, you know, from, to your point, like a directorial debut from Sam Mendes, like, I thought it was extremely strong, and Alan Ball, I'm a huge fan of, Uh, Six Feet Under is, if you asked me the TV show that kind of turned my head in a similar way, it would be Six Feet Under. Okay. Um, Not so, True Blood. I mean, just you know. Going, no, specifically going along the six line. feet under for sure. Um, but yeah, a funny story about this. The probably the worst film to ever watch with your father when you're a teenage <laughs> girl is American Beauty. I can see that. Yeah, I was, my parents were divorced, and uh, I was visiting him, and I have no idea, like why, why. Um, but it was my stepmother, my dad, and I watching this, and yeah, that was extremely uncomfortable. I think he just was like, I'm going to bed, and then put us all out of the yeah. misery of being 15 and watching a total perv <laughs> on screen, you know? At what point did he check out? Was it before the fantasy sequence? I have, I cannot remember. I, it's probably just blacked out due to trauma. Okay. You know, cannot recall. <laughs> this is going to resurface in a script three or four years from now. Yes. It's like, oh, oh, that's where that came from. Yeah, for sure. It's, I, yeah, I, I, I mean, I was there for the moment where everybody catalyzed around it. It became the movie to talk about and the mm-hmm. movie to see. 
And weirdly, this was... I mean, the fall of 99 was the fall of Three Kings and Magnolia. Mm-hmm. And, well, Christmas too, but... Fight Club. Uh, Fight Club and being John Malkovich. It's a good time. It was... Good it time was to be a movie. Hugely. Yeah. yeah the, Ameri- the new American cinema was basically happening mm-hmm. right there. And everybody battened onto this because I think it felt like the most conventional of them. Mm-hmm. It was the safest. But it's not about safety at all. It's about how desire destroys you and... and um, freedom isn't free, you know. It, it, I mean, it's a lot of simplistic sloganeering, but it, I thought it was played realistically. Mm-hmm. I, I don't have a problem with Annette Benning being quite so angry all the time because she's in a marriage that isn't working. Like every mm-hmm. every cartoonish depiction of suburbia is justified within the script by something that is emotionally real. Yeah. To me, anyway, it all felt very believable. And to be honest, the town I grew up in in the U.S. that was kind of like a commuter town to Manhattan, so a similar socioeconomic status and like some of these characters are not far off from that um but um Annette Benning's performance like there's one scene that I still come back to over and over and I've wondered about is when she's trying to sell that house to that I think it's a lesbian couple I think at one point they're just yeah it's like oh lesbians you know we're ready for this (laughs) um but they try to or she tries to sell the house to them and it doesn't go well because it's a shithole. And then she loses her shit in that wide shot against the drapes. Yeah. And then she just adjusts her pencil skirt and then walks off camera. And I've always wondered, like, when you watch things, is that a net bending? Is it, who, who, who suggested that? Right. Because maybe it's a, a gendered thing. As a woman, I was like, I just get it. It's the small adjustment before you put the mask back on. So I thought that was brilliant. I loved her. Yeah, and I don't doubt that Benning has either known women who've been in that situation or have been that woman. Like, she's, there's a lived-in nature to that performance Mm -hmm. that's different from the artifice of Spacey, Mm -hmm. where he's playing a real character, but he's also making sure that the character is a real character. Yeah. You know, like, he's he's pushing it a little bit, and the narration being delivered the way it is is a little bit snide, a little, I mean, but that's why you cast Kevin Spacey. You don't want him to play a person you want him to play an idealized version of Kevin Spacey because that's going to be way more fun and way more seductive and it's mm-hmm. in its strange broken way mm-hmm. apparently he um Jack Lemon in the apartment was a reference point for I can him. see that he's a huge Lemon fan yeah and, and and I guess just like a sense of physicality with the body and whatnot but you know reading about the shooting schedule because um, the character has that physical transformation with him working out yeah and, yeah the American woman thing, which apparently was all ad-libbed, but a lot of it was just his posture um, because, you know, they didn't shoot in order as movies are not. Yeah. Um, but it was kind of interesting, like, reading about Sam Mendes directing him because, for instance, the scene where he and Annette Benning are in bed and she's pissed off that he's been jerking off, and then uh, I guess Mendes had asked him for just, like, give me some euphemisms, you know? And he went on for, like, 15 minutes, and Annette Benning just, like, kept cracking up. But um, speaking about Spacey as someone who's so controlled as an actor, which was perfect for this role, but he didn't say challenge, but a lot of effort on his end went into trying to make him a little less rigid and controlled, and that was kind of an example of a scene where... He had asked him to improv a bit, and, and it worked. Yeah. Spacey's always... He's such an interesting actor when he's looser. When mm-hmm. he's mm-hmm. 
I mean, I like watching him anyway, and this is sort of that peak moment where just before the second Oscar, just before he could do whatever he wanted mm-hmm. and then decided to make stuff like K-Pax for a little while and right. pay it forward, which, you know, we don't speak of. But, <laughs> pay it uh, forward, right? See? I think I saw that at a mall when I was a teenager. Everyone saw it at a mall. Yeah, with my babysitting money. Yeah, Th- that was Wasted. like the following year. Oh, really? See, <laughs> no. that would make that No, no, I remember at the time being, I don't know, it was probably like the Catholic schoolgirl in me that was like, this is this has got a good message, this movie. This right. is a message movie. He's a little Jesus. Mm-hmm. A little Sixth Sense boy. Uh, Too weird. Who's his manager? Not a good movie. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but... But it's the things that... Those are the movies you make when you want to be loved. Mm-hmm. And right, the Kevin good. Spacey who doesn't want to be loved, way more fun. That's a very good point. Yeah. So everybody does it. You know, like there's this this brief moment where it's either the actor or it's the management saying, like, now, you know, you just won an Oscar for playing a bastard. You should totally play lovable guys for right. the next three years. Or geniuses. Or yeah. both. Lovable geniuses. Yeah. But, yeah, Spacey, when he doesn't care if you like him... And uses that to seduce you mm-hmm. as an audience member. That's that's my favorite one. Yeah, I love him. I, I, there's something that I like that polish that he has, and that that he is seemingly in control watching him all the time. Like he he seems like an old movie star in yeah. a way that a lot of people aren't. It's the poise, right? Like he yeah. moves like a dancer. I don't know that totally. he is, but he's always kind of sinewy and, and just yep. slithering Fluid. through scenes. Similar, like George Clooney is. I would say kind of similar and I mean totally different but they have that slithery dancer kind of old Hollywood yeah. star vibe confidence and tailoring yeah t- tailoring for sure Just I remember this is total diversion but seeing um, a TIFF interview with Clooney where Whoever from E-Talk said, um, who are you dating? And he just said, with this, like, George Clooney smile, he said, who are you dating? And totally disarmed her and moved on. And I was like, that's that's someone who's a brilliant movie star. You know, there's a, there's a way to shut it down yeah. and still be charming. And he just turned it on her, which I thought was brilliant. That's good. And it's somebody who's been practiced at that. Like, he's had to develop the defense mechanism. Yeah, for sure. But without... Yeah, without making anybody angry at you so you can continue to have a relationship with mm-hmm. them. I just, it's, that stuff fascinates me because um, the only time I, I interviewed Spacey for any length was in 94 at TIFF That's for so cool. Swimming with Sharks. <laughs> oh, it was great. I just rewatched Swimming with Sharks recently. So he's that guy. Yeah. Like, that's him. Really? It's, it's an unfiltered performance and he's playing a role but he has that ability to just turn on and turn off the charm and it was him and Frank Whaley Mm. and me at a table in the Sutton Place restaurant basically and they were just quietly quietly but perfectly making fun of everybody who wandered in the door and it was just this big you know there were all these celebrity publicists just ushering people in with great big flourishes and it was just the the most pleasurable half hour we barely talked about the movie I bet but it was just I'm gonna watch you guys do your little thing and that sort of spiky world weariness Mm -hmm. that thing he can do where he's seen it all he's disappointed by you personally right now in this (laughs) moment but he's gonna make the best of it that like the thing he does on House of Cards, but he's conspiratorial. He pulls you into whatever the moment is. Yeah. And then to see that turn into middle-aged pathos in in American Beauty, mm-hmm. I, of course he won the Oscar. It's a role that mm-hmm. it's like it's perfect for him. Yeah. To to show a, a seedier, sadder version. And while it's also kind of stunty, mm-hmm. since he's playing. Uh, a sympathetic character after stuff like The Usual Suspect and Seven and right. like that, that run that he had. 
it still works. Mm-hmm. I mean, I will I will defend this movie as a perfect product of its time. Totally. And now, just could you imagine pitching? It'd be like now they'd be pitching an Ed Benning story. Who's Carolyn yeah. Burnham? I would watch that. Yeah, let's, I'm gonna do that. Yeah. Um, I mean, why not? It's. I mean, now it's break. It would be Breaking Bad, right? Like it yeah. would be. Yeah, when, very when they good did the point. reading, they did the reading at uh, TIFF, the Jason Reitman live read, and they got Cranston to do the role. And it's like, yep, that, of course they would. Who else would you even think of? Yeah. Except that you know he doesn't win. Right, right, right. Um, Lester doesn't. Yeah. Win anything. So yeah, in some ways, the Lester Burnham is kind of a precursor to. That yeah. character, I never thought of that before. That's yeah. cool. Oh, and, and uh, Don Draper, too. Like, anybody who can... Right, that's all suburban malaise, though. Yeah, you know? he's like... the first of this this wave. It was just a movie instead of TV, so no one gives it any right. credit. Right, and now it's like post-9-11 world, that, that whole shift. But yeah. mm, very close parallels with that. You're yeah. smart, Norm. Well, this is what I do. But... <laughs> But I've had, I've also had time to think about this. Yeah. Uh, but it is, and it's the kind of movie that was, you know, that's the other thing that happened was that it went on to win picture director, original screenplay, actor. Mm-hmm. Was, was there one other major? That's as far as I know. Those are the big ones. Yeah. Like maybe cinematography. But this was also the one that sort of galvanized DreamWorks as a, mm-hmm. as a distribution force, as a production mm-hmm. company, but also that minted TIFF as the place you go to launch right, your Oscar that's campaign true. and changed everything. That's true. That year, every Oscar, every major Oscar, except for Best Supporting Actress, which went to Angelina Jolie in Girl Interrupted, mm-hmm. went to a movie that played at TIFF, that debuted at TIFF, Boys Don't Cry. Mm-hmm. Um, supporting actor was Michael Caine in The Cider House Rules, and American Beauty took everything else. Right. And um, it just, ever since then the Oscar campaign starts here, which is almost 20 years later now, look what it's done to Mm -hmm, the galas and mm -hmm. special presentations. I I also read that it was not, like, it wasn't a clear for uh, frontrunner. Yeah, no, that year was, you know, that year was really busy. Mm -hmm. I mean, there was a lot of great stuff. And I'm still, you know, I don't think um, Fight Club or being John Malkovich or, or Three Kings or Magnolia would have had a shot, really, because they're all just a little bit too unconventional. Mm-hmm. But then when you look at the breakdown of the nominees, this is the one that's probably, in its in its supposed edginess, it's also the least offensive mm-hmm. to anyone. Yeah. So it's the it's the crowd pleaser, yeah. weirdly enough. I also wrote some bad papers on Fight Club and oh, yeah. Broken Masculinity. I swear, I like part of me just for other people's enjoyment and my own embarrassment, I would just love to upload some of these papers that I wrote and just like it would be very funny to have filmmakers share their film criticism because it's not as you know it's just not the same thing right so it's like you look for different stuff yeah totally and this is your um domain where it's it's so interesting the way I speak about it is coming still from a contextual and emotional angle of my own life and my own angst towards my family and you know all of that but that's what anybody will do when they see a movie like your your baggage as an audience member whatever you bring into the theater with you is naturally going to change the context of the film and make that play Mm -hmm. or not play um but that's fascinating like that's the best thing 700 people sit in the dark and everybody has a completely different experience 700 if you're lucky different numbers today yeah that's true now it's small (laughs) one lone person on their couch hopefully how buying the VOD? Yeah, how does that change? I mean, a movie like this, for example, I don't know that it would play as well seeing it for the first time on 
in the contemporary situation yeah. where there's constant distraction, it's a, it would be perceived as really slow because right. it's yeah. gentle in yeah. its pacing. And I mean, yes, okay, Wes Bentley would be annoying in any context, but I think again, he's supposed to be. All these all these characters are solipsistic mm-hmm. and self-absorbed, and they don't know it, mm-hmm. which is why they are drawn to one another, why they cling to each other, why they can't communicate with each other. Mm-hmm. But I. I can't imagine watching this movie with distractions. Right. And the score is so great, too. Yeah. I feel like The that. Thomas Newman special. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Tinkling, twinkly thing. Totally. But it suits this one. Yeah, it suited it. And for the whole fantasy sequence and, and whatnot, I, I thought it was pretty good. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's um, it's a movie that I had. I have to admit I hadn't really thought about for yeah. 10 years or so, at least. But coming back to it for this was, like, it was actually pleasant. It's like, oh, that's right. There are things in this that really work. Mm-hmm. And there's a couple of... There's stuff that's dated. The technology always totally. calls it out. Yeah. Um, it would be a very different movie in a world of smartphones. Yeah. But... Right. So this whole relationship with Angela, uh, Mina Savari's character, would yeah. be all online. Yeah. There'd be a huge social media component. It would be... Right. Icky and creepy right away. Or he could creep on her without ever actually... Exactly talking to her but also interestingly enough like the um, relationships between teenagers changing like now teenagers like don't even hang out in each other's homes anymore right so just the proximity of the other girl in the home i don't know now yeah he'd be i mean we'd have to rework it so lester's constantly driving his daughter to places yeah to meet people which i think makes it would make it infinitely more creepy yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah. You just, you, like, see him in the parking lot, like, at the cheerleading practice. So did it play as a Lolita situation for you when you were 13? Were you even aware of what that kind no, of stuff was? No, not at all. Um, How did it play? Like, what did you... Did it feel noble or creepy-ish? Um, Less creepy, more creepy? He, it definitely felt creepy, but it's not like I could articulate why or the Lolita connection. Mm-hmm. Um but it also around that age it, it is very weird the lens in which you view your father and I actually yeah I talking to my sisters about the movie and um them just talking about like <clears throat> um one of their friends when we when they were younger was over and then being like you know your dad's really hot and my sister being like what and just that perception about your parents changing um around that age but uh, now viewing it I have a much harsher uh, lens obviously which I'm viewing that dynamic sure Um, but I don't know maybe I should be more offended by it but I know um, that it's yes it is sexual but it's not there's something more to it and there's a deep um yearning that's kind of um, projected onto sexual fantasy etc so I understand it in a different way now as an adult so yeah, yeah, yeah. I don't know it, it doesn't shock me in terms of of the taboo nature and I, I don't know there's like a lot a lot of young women are like frighteningly mature right I mean yeah. to me if anything that is the scariest angle is thinking of the Mina Savari character and I think she's the most interesting um because there's an ability to seduce and I think women are kind of cultured 
um, and raised to posture towards the male gaze, right? right yeah. And seeing her just perform what she's seen and what she knows, and then uh, when it comes close to um, materializing the shift into little girl, like I find that deeply distressing. Yeah. Less than I do maybe a man in middle-aged looking at an attractive young girl, you know? Yeah. It's, it's a thing that, it's a line the movie dances on constantly yeah. because we know in, a, in the backs of our minds somewhere, like, it's the same reason you can watch any fiction, I think, yeah. de- that depicts intense, painful feeling. You know on some level that the actor is complicit in the, in the portrayal. Mm-hmm. In, like, Thora Birch's parents were apparently on, on set for, because she was underage yeah. and, and has a topless scene. There yeah. was this whole thing at the time about how um, her parents were there and it was, yeah. they were careful and she was in, she was in full consciousness of what was going on and there was no exploitation. And I, I believe that. Mm-hmm. I, mean, it, I, I also believe that people are exploited constantly in movies without their knowledge, especially if they're kids. Yes. So if you're making an right. effort, you're going to make an extra effort. But And Suvari is playing someone who is projecting that, that sexuality, but she is also doing it herself as the actor to do it. Totally. So where, where is the separation yeah. in some ways? It makes it uneasy in a way that maybe a less sophisticated script or director or actor might not have been able to sell. Like, all the pieces are in place for us to understand what's going on and still be, you know, we can be geeked out by it, but we understand why we need to see it narratively Mm -hmm. and emotionally in the story. And then, yeah, and when Savari pulls it back and and becomes a kid in front of you, it's just, it's jarring and Yeah, totally. Like, you know, at the end where I think he puts a blanket on her or something. Like, that's... Yeah, she just sort of contracts. Yeah, it's quite devastating. And then... Yeah, and the way just how her character um, postures towards um, Thora Birch and then differently to the mother. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. then, so she's the most dimensional of all of them in some ways. But, uh, yeah, I think, you know, it's so funny, like, now thinking about this movie now, what would that be? Um, yeah, where would the narrative focus go if you told the story now? You suggested... Benning, but I don't. I got, it might be her. I, I think, think it's yeah. it's the. She's on the poster after all, and she's. Yeah, it's a teenage seductress. So it's like with technology, it's it's um, expediting or making. Um, the ability to posture towards a male gaze, not to one male, but to men. Right. Through technology, like it's it's it that terrifies me. So yes, I think it it would be her, and her, kind of exploitation of technology yeah, to get all of the Lester Burnhams, not just Lester Burnham. Yeah, it's almost, oh, what was that, Drew Barrymore? Poison Ivy. I didn't that, see that. Oh, it's terrible. Okay. It's just, it's this icky, um, kind of malevolent Lolita thing that okay. Bar- Barrymore did when she was 17 or 18, and it's it's just creepy. Mm-hmm. It's uh, yeah. a 1992 video bait or something. Right. Not, not, not good. Not worth uh, but there, But now in the age of social media, yeah, it, it would be completely different. I think now it would be Thor Birch and I'm just referring to them as yeah. their actors. Mina Sivari probably would have um, killed him together. You know what I mean? It would have become a co-female right. revenge and narrative empower- on like killing the father, killing the patriarchy, etc., etc. Interesting. Because That's you know the whole the gay angle with Chris Cooper's yeah. character, the shame surrounding that. Do I still buy that? In 2017, yes, to some degree, but I think 
audiences are, are jaded to that as yeah. being something that's that's worth murdering someone for. <laughs> yeah, we see it. Well, it's because we see it every other week in some television show or other. Like that sort of self, the idea that it all boils down to your your vision, self hatred, for lack of a better term. Yeah. But we're also seeing that in the Trump rallies, right? Like these these guys hate themselves for something, and people who tend to I mean I it's it's a cliche there has uh, Lester Burnham's on crack with tiki tor- torches yeah exactly it wouldn't be Wes Bentley although you could probably get all of these guys together at a protest at the end of the movie mm-hmm. on opposite sides and then be shocked to find out or have them be shocked to find out they're on the same side or different sides mm-hmm. but yeah Chris Cooper's thing like it's not just that he's so deeply closeted that he can't acknowledge himself. It's also the Nazi paraphernalia. It's also right, right. the heterosexual fronting. It's also the the abuse of his son. It's like so much of it is mm-hmm. cartoon villain guy that <laughs> Yeah, let's throw on some Nazi shit. Yeah. And it's it's a horrible moment when it plays. Mm-hmm. Like it worked at the time, but now it's just like, oh, there's this laundry list of of stuff where we're watching a whodunit that's supposed to point us at this one character, but clear, like, oh, who would have guessed that the neighbor with the Nazi fixation and secret right. uh, homophobic leaning or open homophobia that covers up his own sexuality? Of course it's him. Of course it's right. him. Like, it's not a surprise. It's not a whodunit. Like, we know. <laughs> yeah. And that's why, I think that's why the thing at the end with that weird uh, 1973's company sitcom angle on the, on the thing that isn't, that isn't oral sex, but sort of looks like the head bobbing. I don't know how to describe yeah, it. Yeah, sounding yeah, like yeah, yeah, yeah. I know what you mean. But it's like, oh, and it's all because uh, Don Knotts looked in the window at the wrong time and then he killed Jack Tripper. Well, yeah, right, right, right. It felt like an, like it felt like a big, obvious gesture to the audience. Like, isn't this shocking? Mm-hmm. But I think in a weird way, that's just how Alan Ball thinks straight people behave. Right, right, right. right. And you know, you, it it was less so in Six Feet Under, where mm-hmm. all the characters are just jerks on one level or another uh but in true blood too where the the lens that ball uses to view um normative sexuality heterosexual suburban america yeah is like it's not toxic but he can see the stuff that's malignant Mm -hmm. and american beauty just sort of brings it all out so the title is sarcastic and it's dripping with contempt for people but the actors are still playing people, so they're going to give them humanity. And it's like it's fighting itself the whole time, which gives it mm-hmm. this strange unspoken tension. Mm-hmm. Everybody's doing awful shit, but they have their reasons, and they think they can justify it mm-hmm. to themselves. And it isn't until somebody is pushed beyond self-justification that it all falls apart. Yeah. But it's... Yeah, it's like it's messy in a good way. Yeah. That I'm thinking about shows like Enlightened... Where, right? Too short lived. Oh my god, yeah. Uh, Dern, amazing like, performance. Fucking amazing in that. Yeah. That felt like the natural successor to American Beauty in a weird way. Yeah. Just when somebody drops out of society but stays in it, mm-hmm. stays physically present mm-hmm. but is mentally disconnected. Yeah. Yeah. Also, the tone is really kind of interesting and like I, I find it quite funny. Um, American Beauty. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Right? And, uh, just a combination maybe with Sam Mendes and Alan Ball, like in a different pairing, maybe it would have mm-hmm. turned out differently. Yeah. But, uh, you know, the tone is, is quite clever. Like, the, the, I mean, the opening with the narration, some of it is just a bit mm, cheesy now. Yeah. Well, but you I, know I, the original concept, right? 
Uh, no. He was going to physically narrate it. He was going to be present as his own ghost. Oh, I heard something about CGI. They were going to CGI him, like, above. Oh, that would be worse. I was like, no, no, no. I was like, I'm going to stop reading this because it's too traumatizing. Yeah. I'm just imagining that this was an option. One uh, story that I've heard is that the original draft had um, had Lester present as a ghost narrating his own <laughs> murder trial and sort of right. showing us things and walking us through it. Like, a, almost like a reverse, not a reverse, but almost like a Susan Kane kind of proposition. Yeah. Where we flash back through his life, but he's the he's the narrator as well as the subject, mm-hmm. and I don't think that would have worked. No, I think that would be too on the nose. Maybe would, theatrically you could pull that off. Wasn't it based on a play? No, but Mendes came from the theater, so oh, okay, he's, okay, he's okay. got that that stage um, instinct. I think. Right. Yeah. But it's. I think it was. I mean, it might have been written as a play, but it's an original script, so. Yeah. It was conceived. Maybe a, maybe I'm mistaking it because Mendes is from theater. Good point. Yeah, and he's trying so hard to be cinematic that he actually does sort of elevate the material beyond right. a simple drama. Mm-hmm. Like he's giving, he's got these grandiose aspirations for visual tweaks and, and yeah. things, and even just the thing about the the plastic bag. Is I know. I still I kind of use that as a joke now with yeah. people. Like when you watch like really bad pretentious films it, like I'll refer to it as like oh it's the paper bag floating in the wind movie like you know <laughs> yeah. we, we know what that is it's earnest though it's like in the within the context of 100%. the film it's genuinely earnest and apparently Alan Ball had a moment in Manhattan eating his sandwich on a lunch break and he was very emotionally moved by the paper bag <laughs> right so for sure it was intended to be earnest, but now it's like, oh lord. Yeah. I was trying to figure out, nothing in Wes Bentley's performance leads me to think he's going to be Lester's killer. No. But the first time watching it, I was trying to figure out if this character is supposed to be like so committed to art that he'll end up being the guy who does it. Right. But that was... I think that's just a choice of Bentley's to be that intense and that focused. Right. And it's definitely creepy. Yeah, that his character is probably my least favorite because mm-hmm. it's um, yeah, it's a, a bit too earnest. Like the rest of it has this humor in it, and then it's like him next door. It's it's just jarring and it's kind of unrelenting in how intense and creepy he is. Yeah, he doesn't crack. He has no time, <laughs> even when he's supposed to be romantic. Yeah, it's just focus. It's yeah, just and I actually intensity. don't know if any teenage girl would respond to that courtship at all. Although I guess we're supposed to believe it's her desperation, etc. Yeah, they're two broken souls who see each other and find each other across the, yeah. the fields of backyards or something. <laughs> Through the windows. Know. Yeah, it's, a, it's poetic. Yeah. But it's also... I don't think that relationship's going to last. Right, no, of course <laughs> I think, not. I don't think they're going to make it to college together. Yeah. But it's, it's an emotional hook that is credible because mm-hmm. of the performers, I think. Even yep. though the script, if, if you're laying it out, it's like, oh, and this happens, and then this happens. You can, you can. This is how it's so. Why it was so easy to dismiss, I'm sure, at the time. It's like, and then these people follow up, and then because it tells yeah. you where it's going. Yeah, totally. But that's the point of the film. It actually starts by saying, "This is going to happen." Yeah, I'm, I'm going to be dead by the end of the movie. Yeah. And it just occurred to me now, also probably why I responded to it, and the the thing that I actually find. This most tragic or the most mm, that provokes me the most is the kind of loss of the parent-daughter relationship mm-hmm. in, in its kind of pure sense and yeah. their complete inability to speak to each other. 
It actually reminds me of a very strange reference, but the beginning of my so-called life, that Claire Dane oh, yeah. series, uh, which I also watched as a teenager. But the first line, Claire Danes is like running around in a towel trying to get ready for school and the father comes out and they run away kind of embarrassed. And the voiceover is the day that I got breast was the day my dad stopped talking to me. Uh, which, you know, charming, whatever. But similarly with this, that shift that happens between fathers of daughters in that um, that point in life is yeah. very sad, right? And some can't get back from it. And when I'm even thinking about my own film that I just finished and, and that space between yeah. fathers and daughters that it can be difficult to get back, you know, it's obviously something I'm still drawn to. Did you experience it yourself as a kid? Mm-hmm. Yeah. I, I have a complicated relationship with my father, and it's not for lack of love or anything. It's just it's, it's that gap between those two characters that just got too big right. in a way that neither knows how to get back, which is so sad, you know, for a parent and a child. Yeah. Um, yeah. No, I know a couple of sibling relationships that sort of play the same way yeah. where there's just enough of an age difference that it separates out. And yeah, you can convince yourself you have nothing in common with a family member, which is one of the strangest totally. places to be in a relationship. Yeah, a because I'm fully a blood is thicker than water type person, you know? Yeah. Um, but who knows? Mm. I'm sure it is not my dad's favorite movie or a lot of parents, I would say. Well, I can't. Yeah, I, I can't imagine. I mean, I don't have kids, uh, but I can't imagine being in a position where you go see this, you innocently go see a movie that everybody's talking about it and the critics are raving about it. Oh, and it just won the Oscar. And oh, yeah, by the way, it's about how you're a terrible person. Like, mm-hmm. it's just about how you, sir, specifically are bad. Yeah. And I'm desperately, oh, I'm like, and this is why, man, it's going to be a men's rights speech. It. In a weird way, it does kind of go there. With like the it, men's rights yeah. angle? Oh, for sure. I yeah, mean, it's like, totally. It's a weird... I was trying to figure it out if I could make an eloquent connection to it, but it's just messy. But it, you could come away from this movie and go, yeah, why are the white men getting picked on so much? No, oh my God, you're absolutely right. And that's kind of terrifying. Yeah, and like, well, this week tw- especially. Pardon me? This yes. This week especially. And it's I mean, like, in the 2017 version, is he with his Pier 1 tiki torch yeah. down at Charlottesville? I think he's a sympathizer, but he wouldn't actually march. Yeah. Like he would say, he would be the guy who sits at the bar and goes, well, they have some valid points. Yeah, totally. I don't totally. know about that. Look at me. Look what I just had to do. And that, yeah, that whole thing about um, the initial, like the introduction to Lester as someone who is, has just been downsized and has been asked to define the reasons that he should be mm-hmm. kept. Now it's that scene, uh, what was the other film, where somebody offered the chance to train his replacement. You, know, you can stay on for another two months, but you have to train this guy how to do the job that we're not going to let you keep. Mm-hmm. And there's a a sense of, you know, turn of the millennium malaise or something that runs through the film that you can't, that I don't think even the film can articulate. Yeah. I think Ball knew he was onto something, but he couldn't articulate right. it. Yeah. And you get it in Spacey. It's expressed in his performance in that, in the, like he's the first, this is going to sound so pretentious. Yeah. He's the first millennial. Interesting. He's the guy who decides I'm more important than right. everything around me, and That's I'm awesome. going to do this instead. Right. That's you know, a very cool drop observation. Out, get high, work at McDonald's, just not be yeah. what anybody wants him to be. Yeah. And I, I put it out there. I like millennials. They're they're yeah. very good at. I love their coffees and their their hamburgers. Great coffee. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Tiny hamburgers and yeah. I'm so old. But 
Yeah, no, it, it, it's a really weird movie to look back on and find all these threads that are now coming together in a way that I don't think anyone involved with the movie ever intended them yeah. to. It's just run amok. Well, in some ways now people would maybe pick up the script and say, who gives a fuck, mm, right? Yeah. Because... Why do I care about this guy? Yeah, this like aging millennial, and it's like boo-hoo kind of thing. Yeah. I wonder what the millennial American beauty will look like, though. I mean, we're already seeing dozens of films but by the time this comes out we will have seen and hopefully been done with the only living boy in new york which is the new book of henry which right. is like this incredibly blinkered movie about a white guy who sleeps with his father's mistress because he can't sleep with the woman he really wants okay. it's incredibly icky okay. to sit through and, and it's somebody's idea of oh this is like a modern woody allen movie it's like well no it isn't oh, so it's like the tone is Tries to be, yeah. It's an Whoa. upper, it's an Upper West Side, Lower East Side kind of movie. Okay, okay. It's just, oh, it's abysmal. It opens, really? yeah. It opens with a dinner party where Wallace Shawn is for some reason, and someone, and a twenty-year-old says, "New York has lost its soul," and you just want, to, you're twenty or twenty-five, right? New York so lost its soul you? before yeah. you were born, right? Little shit. And yeah. He's living in the Lower East. Side. The film, I think, was written in nineteen ninety-five, but it's only happening. Now. Okay. It just feels like that. It's, everybody's talking about how great the seventies were, and they mention people mention Lou Reed, and people mention. Um, the other big influence is uh, Andy Warhol's name comes up, and it's just like, you people are all too young to have experienced the things you're talking about. And the film just ignores it and barrels forward. Right. It's the kind of movie where people say, make love, mm-hmm, which is mm-hmm. not a thing people in their 20s say. Right. Unless it's ironic. Yeah. Wes Bentley's character would say it. Yes, and right. And it'd be real creepy. But like that's the legacy of American Beauty, is that people miss the point that it is barbed clearly and like it is satire it is it's supposed to be a mockery of these people i mean we get to see we see how the cliche is based in uh contempt but Mm -hmm. then we see the humanity beneath the contempt Mm -hmm. which makes the film land right Mm -hmm. like that's what we're there for and everybody else saw that and came away with well i'm gonna make my movie about how the suburbs are terrible but we already know that's not what this is about the suburbs are terrible yeah but the, even the sense of this suburb doesn't exist anymore, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. That's um, right. There's the one gay couple, right? The little yeah, across the, the road. Maybe they're, yeah, probably the most uh, innocuous, lovely characters Well, in they're the, the only ones they're who don't do anything friends. awful, right? Yeah, like totally. They, they, they say hello, help. good morning, yeah. and that's it. Um, but yeah, now this, it's almost like, mm, I don't know what it is. It just doesn't exist, right? The yeah. middle class is dead, or so people say. Yeah. I, that's what I when you started talking about how you would reframe it now it's like you, could you even where would it be located where would you tell the story right because Arizona we, maybe like somewhere m- far away maybe but it is like there's only like seemingly extreme wealth or you know yeah close to abject, poverty line poverty yeah. or at least from what we're seeing out of stuff mm-hmm um yeah, well, it's like the mid the mid range movie disappearing. There's just exactly no one's telling stories about the middle anymore, and everything in the middle is gone. Yeah, movies, homes, so income. fragmented. I mean, there will be at some point there will be a Marvel movie that introduces like a homeless character or something, and that's how they'll be able to justify. Oh no, 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 we're making movies about right. this issue. We just have to tuck it into Iron Man five. Mm-hmm. But yeah, that's not where things go anymore. Yeah. I'm, I'm really interested to see where the new generation of filmmakers come from and where they go. Yeah. Because we're at a point where you can tell any story. I mean, for limited budgets, stuff like Good Time, uh, the the Safdie Brothers film that I didn't see that. It's really good. Just okay. opened. Um, Robert Pattinson's the mm-hmm. lead. It's a movie about 
a guy trying to do a good thing, or at least telling himself that he's trying to do a good thing. And over the course of one night, he destroys the lives of everyone he touches. Mm-hmm. And it's never directly stated, but it's very clear that the fact that he is a clean-looking white guy gets him out of half the problems mm-hmm. he's in. Oh, that's cool. And more doors are open to him, more options are there. And whether mm-hmm. or not he takes them, like they're presented in a way that there's three or four key black characters who get, just get destroyed mm-hmm. by the end of the film because of their contact right. with him. And um, Jennifer Jason Lee shows up as his sort of girlfriend, and it's clear that's not a really great relationship, but she's letting a lot of it slide because of who he is. And right. it's, it's really interesting. And hmm. it's never spoken. It's just there. Interesting. Uh, I, I gotta yeah. check that out. Yeah, yeah. I mean, when you have time. Yeah. Well, you saying that even the, all the context of which American Beauty could be now, but maybe is it like the neighbors are black? You know, there's going to be a re- racial yeah, context maybe. But, I mean, look at the difference of satire in something like Get Out now mm-hmm. versus this. You know, now mm-hmm. this, like, that blows this out of the water in yeah. terms of of impact and weight. Yeah. Well, and the genius of Get Out, too, is that it's using our expectations of horror films against Yeah, and us, that's right? what's like, so brilliant about it yeah. is how it's packaged. God, yeah. that movie's so good. <laughs> it is. It is. It's great. And, and it is the same kind of soul-deadening American suburb movie. I mean, it's it's more like country homes and stuff, but it's definitely the same social circle that this film is about. Yeah, that American totally. Movie is about. It's just this is what happens when a an out a genuine outsider wanders in, and, and they're like they're waiting for legitimately him. like monsters, you know. Yeah. Um, the Purge too, like those films, as as goofy as they are, right? That's the core of it, right? Like the idea of gated communities that are there to eat whoever comes right. in. And, and, Interesting. So yeah. it's like maybe now American Beauty would be in a genre space. I mean, it could be. Could be, yeah. Yeah. You have to have vampires or yeah. werewolves. I would like to see a, a werewolf American Beauty. Sure. I'll get on it. It even kind of lines up. You've got American werewolf in the, in the culture, right? Exactly. It's in your mind. I would watch that. Yeah. Yeah, no, it seems... Um, it was of its moment. It was like of its, its moment, as you say, and it was of its moment in my life. Um, but I, I hold a fondness for it opening my eyes to film in mm. that pretentious beret-wearing way. But um, And it took years later to become a filmmaker, but I always kind of come back to it. So is it the concept of autourism you never really consider? Yeah, no, not at all. Um, so... I'm grateful to that, but of course, uh, if I had seen it for the first time now, like, I think we both agree that it still stands up to some degree, mm. performance being one of them, but yeah, I think the relevance has kind of gotten diminished in, in our times. Yeah. Well, the world has changed. I was like, I'm thinking about how Noah Baumbach's movies are going to play 10 years from now. Right. They're, they're wonderful and incisive and painful, and... I just wonder, like, will they will they date? Will they hold up? Will they right. change? It's the the same kind of uh, condemnation of their characters. Yeah, he loves his characters even as he watches them make mistake after mistake mm-hmm. after mistake. And I think this film, right, a, there's a lot of that there too. So mm-hmm. so then to to ask the final question, mm-hmm. like, what if anything of American Beauty have you have you borrowed or stolen or incorporated into your own creative DNA? Um. It's so cheesy, but it's like the thematic 
pinning of underpinning of the film, which is that look closer. I think that was the marketing tagline. Yeah, it was. It's, it's built into the um, set dressing at his cubicle. Um, so for me, at a very superficial level, at that age too, I was learning to look at things beyond how they were presented to me. So, I mean, it's over the top in terms of kind of hitting our heads over the hammer. Like we get it, the blood, the rose petals, but. If anything, uh, reminding myself that there are visual tools that you can use as a filmmaker um, that can elevate things. Now looking at this, some of it is so exaggerated. Like it's almost, it's just a bit borderline cheesy. And I think now we're in a space of maybe a little more subtlety uh, in terms of that. But I, I appreciate and still do how it draws our awareness to, um, decisions that are made in the aesthetic of the film that that influence your interpretation of it yeah um but no nothing i've i've not done any nude teenagers in <laughs> bathtubs with rose petals i mean give it time i mean who never knows say never. yeah never say never but i think they they covered that whole that whole thing yeah well i mean <laughs> the way that uh mary goes around deals with teen sexuality is yeah. is pretty clear-eyed i would say yeah just the sense that mistakes will be made they'll be part of who you are and then you just keep going exactly but it's yeah it's really like it's rare that and maybe it's simply because we're seeing more women make films tell their stories themselves that there is more of a sense of uh there's there's no how how can i put this there's no sense that one moment can define you forever either for good or ill right. there's a lot of that in american yeah. movie there's a sense of it, it comes right up to the edge of constantly slut shaming its characters and making them feel like they shouldn't act on their totally yeah. and it's like well obviously you know like the kind of dynamical like well why wouldn't he? you know the, yeah it, it's it's a bit too obvious the whole thing and um i mean Sivari's character uh has a power that is very underexplored in yeah. terms of her characterization that now if you were to take that role um i think it would be more than just temptress yeah i think i think so i mean we're seeing her primarily through lester's point of yeah. view but I, yeah i think now you would have to give her more if not more agency than at least more presence yeah. than just a, a, a body for sure and in some ways i would love to see her character sequel what does yeah. she look like as a 40-year-old woman, you know, and trying to reconcile her hypersexualized past with whatever arrangements or um, relationships she's ended up in. In fact, there's a book that it's called Love in Trouble. It's by an American author named Claire Derrider. Oh, I don't know it. Um, picked it up and I was like, yeah. So I, I had this idea with one of my next features. I want to write like a really strong female middle-aged role mm-hmm. um but the book is, is uh, it's a memoir about how this woman is is happy in her life and she's got the two kids and a husband and uh she totally freaks out and in her 40s kind of re-sexualizes herself and wreaks a lot of havoc but in some ways it's like she's the lester burnham now yeah, yeah. Um, but what's great about it is it's not really conclusive nor are the repercussions um, fatal in a literal or figurative way. Like right. It's kind of just, 
she chronicles the experience and is very self-aware as to why she had it. But in the end, status quo is kind of maintained. Like, she, she stays with the partner he is aware of, but stays with her, mm-hmm. which I find kind of refreshing. You yeah. know, it becomes... Um, uh, yeah, I, it, there's less overt um, judgment and kind of a moralistic uh, way of viewing, I guess, transgressive behavior in yeah. the context of, like, heteronormative life that sounded like a really terrible no no i get it and you know couples come apart and come back together all the time we just never hear about it because it's not dramatic right right and the idea that people keep their own you know private business is private business what happens between a husband and wife and so on you only ever hear about the couples that shatter right and that's obviously the movies that get made because it gives people the chance to go bigger and, and tell those stories but yeah it must be more common than we think it is right yeah, what if what if Annette Bening just walked by and was like, you know, made a pass at him and then got on with her day? Right? Yeah. <laughs> like, yeah, yeah. Of course, life goes on. The movie isn't nearly as interesting. True. As the dead man narrating his own tale. Yeah, of course, of course. Uh, drama. Give the people the drama. <laughs> My thanks to Molly McGlynn, who's bringing Mary Goes Round to TIFF for its world premiere tomorrow, Saturday, September 9th at 3 p.m. at the TIFF Bell Lightbox. It's back at the Lightbox on Sunday the 10th at 7.15pm and screening one more time Sunday the 17th at 2.30pm at the Scotiabank 9. I hope you wrote that down. You can find Molly on Twitter at TheRealMollyMcG, all one word, and you can find American Beauty on Blu-ray and DVD from Paramount Home Entertainment. It's also available on iTunes and Google Play. As always, you can find me on Twitter at Norm Wilner and elsewhere on the internet at NowToronto.com. You can also find this podcast on Twitter at Semcast. S-E-M-Cast, and on the web at someoneelsesmovie.com. If you want to leave a review on iTunes, that would be greatly appreciated. No plastic bags necessary. Just speak your feelings. Thanks for listening.